Chapter twenty three of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter twenty three. Quid quod prefatione premunierem libellum qua conor omnem offendiculi ansam presidere neque quicquam adubito quin ea candidis omnibus faciat satis quid autem facias istis qui vel ob ingenii pertinaciam sibi satisfieri nolid vel stupidiore sint quam ut satisfactionem intelligent nam quem admodum simonides dixit thessalos hebetiores esse quam ut possint asse decipi ita quosdam videa stupidiores quam ut placari queant ad haec non mirum est invenire quod calumniato qui nihil aliud quaerit nisi quod calumniato erasmus ad dorpium theologum in the rifacimento of the friend i have inserted extracts from the consiones ad populum printed though scarcely published in the year seventeen ninety five in the very heat and height of my anti-ministerial enthusiasm these in proof that my principles of politics have sustained no change in the present chapter i have annexed to my letters from germany with particular reference to that which contains a disquisition on the modern drama a critique on the tragedy of bertram written within the last twelve months in proof that i have been as falsely charged with any fickleness in my principles of taste the letter was written to a friend and the apparent abruptness with which it begins is owing to the omission of the introductory sentences you remember my dear sir that mr whitbread shortly before his death proposed to the assembled subscribers of jury lane theatre that the concern should be farmed to some responsible individual under certain conditions and limitations and that his proposal was rejected not without indignation as subversive of the main object for the attainment of which the enlightened and patriotic assemblage of philodramatists had been induced to risk their subscriptions now this object was avowed to be no less than the redemption of the british stage not only from horses dogs elephants and the like zoological rarities but also from the more pernicious barbarisms and kotzebuisms in morals and taste Drury lane was to be restored to its former classical renown shakespeare johnson and otway with the expurgated muses of ambrew congreve and witcherley were to be reinaugurated in their rightful dominion over british audiences and the herculean process was to commence by exterminating the speaking monsters imported from the banks of the danube compared with which their mute relations the emigrants from exeter change and polito late pidcock's show-carts were tame and inoffensive could an heroic project at once so refined and so arduous be consistently entrusted to could its success be rationally expected from a mercenary manager at whose critical quarantine the lucri bonus odor would conciliate a bill of health to the plague in person no as the work proposed such must be the workmasters rank fortune liberal education and their natural accompaniments or consequences critical discernment delicate tact disinterestedness unsuspected morals notorious patriotism and tried mycenaship these were the recommendations that influenced the votes of the proprietary subscribers of jury lane theatre these the motives that occasioned the election of its supreme committee of management this circumstance alone would have excited a strong interest in the public mind respecting the first production of the tragic muse which had been announced under such auspices and had passed the ordeal of such judgments and the tragedy on which you have requested my judgment was the work on which the great expectations justified by so many causes were doomed at length to settle but before i enter on the examination of bertram or the castle of st aldobrand i shall interpose a few words on the phrase german drama 
which I hold to be altogether a misnomer. At the time of Lessing, the German stage, such as it was, appears to have been a flat and servile copy of the French. It was Lessing who first introduced the name and the works of Shakespeare to the admiration of the Germans, and I should not perhaps go too far if I add that it was Lessing who first proved to all thinking men, even to Shakespeare's own countrymen, the true nature of his apparent irregularities. These, he demonstrated, were deviations only from the accidents of the Greek tragedy, and from such accidents as hung a heavy weight on the wings of the Greek poets, and narrowed their flight within the limits of what we may call the heroic opera. He proved that, in all the essentials of art, no less than in the truth of nature, the plays of Shakespeare were incomparably more coincident with the principles of Aristotle than the productions of Corneille and Racine, notwithstanding the boasted regularity of the latter. Under these convictions were Lessing's own dramatic works composed. Their deficiency is in depth and imagination. Their excellence is in the construction of the plot, the good sense of the sentiments, the sobriety of the morals, and the high polish of the diction and dialogue. In short, his dramas are the very antipodes of all those which it has been the fashion of late years at once to abuse and enjoy, under the name of the German drama. Of this latter, Schiller's Robbers was the earliest specimen, the first fruits of his youth, I had almost said of his boyhood, and as such the pledge and promise of no ordinary genius. Only as such did the maturer judgment of the author tolerate the play. During his whole life he expressed himself concerning this production with more than needful asperity, as a monster not less offensive to good taste than to sound morals, and in his latter years his indignation at the unwonted popularity of the robbers seduced him into the contrary extremes, viz. a studied feebleness of interest, as far as the interest was to be derived from incidents and the excitement of curiosity, a diction elaborately metrical, the affectation of rhymes, and the pedantry of the chorus. But to understand the true character of the robbers, and of the countless imitations which were its spawn, I must inform you, or at least call to your recollection, that about that time, and for some years before it, three of the most popular books in the German language were the translations of Young's Night Thoughts, Harvey's Meditations, and Richardson's Clarissa Harlowe. Now we have only to combine the bloated style and peculiar rhythm of Harvey, which is poetic only on account of its utter unfitness for prose, and might as appropriately be called prosaic, from its utter unfitness for poetry. We have only, I repeat, to combine these Harveyisms with the strained thoughts, the figurative metaphysics and solemn epigrams of Young on the one hand, and with the loaded sensibility, the minute detail, the morbid consciousness of every thought and feeling in the whole flux and reflux of the mind, in short the self-involution and dream-like continuity of Richardson on the other hand, and then to add the horrific incidents and mysterious villains, geniuses of supernatural intellect, if you will take the author's words for it, but on a level with the meanest ruffians of the condemned cells, if we are to judge by their actions and contrivances, to add the ruined castles, the dungeons, the trap-doors, the skeletons, the flesh-and-blood ghosts, and the perpetual moonshine of a modern author, themselves the literary brood of the castle of Otranto, the translations of which, with the imitations and improvements aforesaid, were about that time beginning to make as much noise in Germany as their originals were making in England, and as the compound of these ingredients duly mixed, you will recognise the so-called German drama. The Ola Podrida thus cooked up was denounced by the best critics in Germany as the mere cramps of weakness and orgasms of a sickly imagination on the part of the author, and the lowest provocation of torpid feeling on that of the readers. The old blunder, however, concerning the irregularity and wildness of Shakespeare, in which the German did but echo the French, who again were but the echoes of our own critics, was still in vogue, and Shakespeare was quoted as authority for the most anti-Shakespearean drama, we have indeed two poets who wrote as one, near the age of Shakespeare, to whom, as the worst characteristic of their writings, 
the coryphaeus of the present drama may challenge the honour of being a poor relation or impoverished descendant for if he would charitably consent to forget the comic humour the wit the felicities of style in other words all the poetry and nine-tenths of all the genius of beaumont and fletcher that which would remain becomes a kotzebue the so-called german drama therefore is english in its origin english in its materials and english by readoption until we can prove that kotzebue or any of the whole breed of kotzebues whether dramatists or romantic writers or writers of romantic dramas were ever admitted to any other shelf in the libraries of well-educated germans than were occupied by their originals and apes apes in their mother country we should submit to carry our own brat on our own shoulders or rather consider it as a lack grace returned from transportation with such improvements only in growth and manners as young transported convicts usually come home with i know nothing that contributes more to a clearer insight into the true nature of any literary phenomenon than the comparison of it with some elder production the likeness of which is striking yet only apparent while the difference is real in the present case this opportunity is furnished us by the old spanish play entitled atheista fulminato formerly and perhaps still acted in the churches and monasteries of spain and which under various names don juan the libertine etc has had its day of favour in every country throughout europe a popularity so extensive and of a work so grotesque and extravagant claims and merits philosophical attention and investigation the first point to be noticed is that the play is throughout imaginative nothing of it belongs to the real world but the names of the places and persons the comic parts equally with the tragic the living equally with the defunct characters are creatures of the brain as little amenable to the rules of ordinary probability as the satan of paradise lost or the caliban of the tempest and therefore to be understood and judged of as impersonated abstractions rank fortune wit talent acquired knowledge and liberal accomplishments with beauty of person vigorous health and constitutional hardihood all these advantages elevated by the habits and sympathies of noble birth and national character are supposed to have combined in don juan so as to give him the means of carrying into all its practical consequences the doctrine of a godless nature as the sole ground and efficient cause not only of all things events and appearances but likewise of all our thoughts sensations impulses and actions obedience to nature is the only virtue the gratification of the passions and appetites her only dictate each individual self-will the sole organ through which nature utters her commands and self-contradiction is the only wrong for by the laws of spirit in the right is every individual character that acts in strict consistence with itself that speculative opinions however impious and daring they may be are not always followed by correspondent conduct is most true as well as that they can scarcely in any instance be systematically realised on account of their unsuitableness to human nature and to the institutions of society it can be hell only where it is all hell and a separate world of devils is necessary for the existence of any one complete devil but on the other hand it is no less clear nor with the biography of carrier and his fellow atheists before us can it be denied without wilful blindness that the so-called system of nature that is materialism with the utter rejection of moral responsibility of a present providence and of both present and future retribution may influence the characters and actions of individuals and even of communities to a degree that almost does away the distinction between men and devils and will make the page of the future historian resemble the narration of a madman's dreams it is not the wickedness of don juan therefore which constitutes the character an abstraction and removes it from the rules of probability but the rapid succession of the correspondent acts and incidents his intellectual superiority and the splendid accumulation of his gifts and desirable qualities as coexistent with entire wickedness in one and the same person 
but this likewise is the very circumstance which gives to this strange play its charm and universal interest don juan is from beginning to end an intelligible character as much so as the satan of milton the poet asks only of the reader what as a poet he is privileged to ask namely that sort of negative faith in the existence of such a being which we willingly give to productions professedly ideal and a disposition to the same state of feeling as that with which we contemplate the idealized figures of the apollo belvedere and the farnese hercules what the hercules is to the eye in corporeal strength don juan is to the mind in strength of character the ideal consists in the happy balance of the generic with the individual the former makes the character representative and symbolical therefore instructive because mutatis mutandis it is applicable to whole classes of men the latter gives it living interest for nothing lives or is real but as definite and individual to understand this completely the reader need only recollect the specific state of his feelings when in looking at a picture of the historic more properly of the poetic or heroic class he objects to a particular figure as being too much of a portrait and this interruption of his complacency he feels without the least reference to or the least acquaintance with any person in real life whom he might recognize in this figure it is enough that such a figure is not ideal and therefore not ideal because one of the two factors or elements of the ideal is in excess a similar and more powerful objection he would feel towards a set of figures which were mere abstractions like those of cipriani and what have been called greek forms and faces that is outlines drawn according to a recipe these again are not ideal because in these the other element is in excess forma formans per formam formatam translucens is the definition and perfection of ideal art this excellence is so happily achieved in the don juan that it is capable of interesting without poetry nay even without words as in our pantomime of that name we see clearly how the character is formed and the very extravagance of the incidents and the superhuman entireness of don juan's agency prevents the wickedness from shocking our minds to any painful degree we do not believe it enough for this effect no not even with that kind of temporary and negative belief or acquiescence which i have described above meantime the qualities of his character are too desirable too flattering to our pride and our wishes not to make up on this side as much additional faith as was lost on the other there is no danger thinks the spectator or reader of my becoming such a monster of iniquity as don juan i never shall be an atheist i shall never disallow all distinction between right and wrong i have not the least inclination to be so outrageous a draw-cancer in my love affairs but to possess such a power of captivating and enchanting the affections of the other sex to be capable of inspiring in a charming and even a virtuous woman a love so deep and so entirely personal to me that even my worst vices if i were vicious even my cruelty and perfidy if i were cruel and perfidious could not eradicate the passion to be so loved for my own self that even with a distinct knowledge of my character she had died to save me this sir takes hold of two sides of our nature the better and the worse for the heroic disinterestedness to which love can transport a woman cannot be contemplated without an honourable emotion of reverence towards womanhood and on the other hand it is among the miseries and abides in the dark groundwork of our nature to crave an outward confirmation of that something within us which is our very self that something not made up of our qualities and relations but itself the supporter and substantial basis of all these love me and not my qualities may be a vicious and an insane wish but it is not a wish wholly without a meaning without power virtue would be insufficient and incapable of revealing its being it would resemble the magic transformation of tasso's heroine into a tree in which she could only groan and bleed hence power is necessarily an object of our desire and of our admiration but of all power that of the mind is on every account 
the grand desideratum of human ambition we shall be as gods in knowledge was and must have been the first temptation and the coexistence of great intellectual lordship with guilt has never been adequately represented without exciting the strongest interest and for this reason that in this bad and heterogeneous coordination we can contemplate the intellect of man more exclusively as a separate self-subsistence than in its proper state of subordination to his own conscience or to the will of an infinitely superior being this is the sacred charm of shakespeare's male characters in general they are all cast in the mould of shakespeare's own gigantic intellect and this is the open attraction of his richard iago edmund and others in particular but again of all intellectual power that of superiority to the fear of the invisible world is the most dazzling its influence is abundantly proved by the one circumstance that it can bribe us into a voluntary submission of our better knowledge into suspension of all our judgment derived from constant experience and enable us to peruse with the liveliest interest the wildest tales of ghosts wizards genii and secret talismans on this propensity so deeply rooted in our nature a specific dramatic probability may be raised by a true poet if the whole of his work be in harmony a dramatic probability sufficient for dramatic pleasure even when the component characters and incidents border on impossibility the poet does not require us to be awake and believe he solicits us only to yield ourselves to a dream and this too with our eyes open and with our judgment perdue behind the curtain ready to awaken us at the first motion of our will and meantime only not to disbelieve and in such a state of mind who but must be impressed with the cool intrepidity of don john on the appearance of his father's ghost ghost monster behold these wounds don john i do they were well meant and well performed i see ghost repent repent of all thy villainies my clamorous blood to heaven for vengeance cries heaven will pour out his judgments on you all hell gapes for you for you each fiend doth call and hourly waits your unrepenting fall you with eternal horrors they'll torment except of all your crimes you suddenly repent ghost sinks don john farewell thou art a foolish ghost repent quoth he what could this mean our senses are all in a mist sure don antonio one of don john's reprobate companions they are not twas a ghost don lopez another reprobate i ne'er believed those foolish tales before don john come tis no matter let it be what it will it must be natural don antonio our nature is unalterable in us too don john tis true the nature of a ghost cannot change ours who also can deny a portion of sublimity to the tremendous consistency with which he stands out the last fearful trial like a second prometheus chorus of devils statue ghost will you not relent and feel remorse don john couldst thou bestow another heart on me i might but with this heart i have i cannot don lopez these things are prodigious don antonio i have a sort of grudging to relent but something holds me back don lopez if we could tis now too late i will not don antonio we defy thee ghost perish ye impious wretches go and find the punishments laid up in store for you thunder and lightning don lopez and don antonio are swallowed up ghost to don john behold their dreadful fates and know that thy last moments come don john think not to fright me foolish ghost i'll break your marble body in pieces and pull down your horse thunder and lightning chorus of devils etc don john these things i see with wonder but no fear 
were all the elements to be confounded and shuffled all into their former chaos were seas of sulphur flaming round about me and all mankind roaring within those fires i could not fear or feel the least remorse to the last instant i would dare thy power here i stand firm and all thy threats contemn thy murderer to the ghost of one whom he had murdered stands here now do thy worst he is swallowed up in a cloud of fire in fine the character of don john consists in the union of everything desirable to human nature as means and which therefore by the well-known law of association becomes at length desirable on their own account on their own account and in their own dignity they are here displayed as being employed to ends so unhuman that in the effect they appear almost as means without an end the ingredients too are mixed in the happiest proportion so as to uphold and relieve each other more especially in that constant interpoise of wit gaiety and social generosity which prevents the criminal even in his most atrocious moments from sinking into the mere ruffian as far at least as our imagination sits in judgment above all the fine suffusion through the whole with the characteristic manners and feelings of a highly bred gentleman gives life to the drama thus having invited the statue ghost of the governor whom he had murdered to supper which invitation the marble ghost accepted by a nod of the head don john has prepared a banquet don john some wine sirrah here's to don pedro's ghost he should have been welcome on lopez the rascal is afraid of you after death one knocks hard at the door don john to the servant rise and do your duty servant oh the devil the devil marble ghost enters don john ha tis the ghost let's rise and receive him come governor you are welcome sit there if we had thought you would have come we would have stayed for you here governor your health friends put it about here's excellent meat taste of this ragout come i'll help you come eat and let old quarrels be forgotten the ghost threatens him with vengeance don john we are too much confirmed curse on this dry discourse come here's to your mistress you had one when you were living not forgetting your sweet sister devil centre don john are these some of your retinue devil say you i'm sorry i have no burnt brandy to treat em with that's drink fit for devils etc nor is the scene from which we quote interesting in dramatic probability alone it is susceptible likewise of a sound moral of a moral that has more than common claims on the notice of a too numerous class who are ready to receive the qualities of gentlemanly courage and scrupulous honour in all the recognised laws of honour as the substitutes of virtue instead of its ornaments this indeed is the moral value of the play at large and that which places it at a world's distance from the spirit of modern jacobinism the latter introduces to us clumsy copies of these showy instrumental qualities in order to reconcile us to vice and want of principle while the atheist of fulminato presents an exquisite portraiture of the same qualities in all their gloss and glow but presents them for the sole purpose of displaying their hollowness and in order to put us on our guard by demonstrating their utter indifference to vice and virtue whenever these and the like accomplishments are contemplated for themselves alone eighteen years ago i observed that the whole secret of the modern jacobinical drama which and not the german is its appropriate designation and of all its popularity consists in the confusion and subversion of the natural order of things in their causes and effects namely in the excitement of surprise by representing the qualities of liberality refined feeling and a nice sense of honour those things rather which pass amongst us for such in persons and in classes where experience teaches us least to expect them and by rewarding with all the sympathies which are the due of virtue those criminals whom law reason and religion have excommunicated from our esteem this of itself would lead me back to bertram or the castle of st aldobrand but in my own mind this tragedy was brought into connection with the libertine 
Shadwell's adaptation of the atheist of Fulminato to the English stage in the reign of Charles II, by the fact that our modern drama is taken in the substance of it from the first scene of the third act of the Libertine. But with what palpable superiority of judgment in the original? Earth and hell, men and spirits are up in arms against Don John. The two former acts of the play have not only prepared us for the supernatural, but accustomed us to the prodigious. It is therefore neither more nor less than we anticipate when the captain exclaims, In all the dangers I have been, such horrors I never knew, I am quite unmanned. And when the hermit says that he had beheld the ocean in wildest rage, yet ne'er before saw a storm so dreadful, such horrid flashes of lightning and such claps of thunder were never in my remembrance. And Don John's burst of startling impiety is equally intelligible in its motive, as dramatic in its effect. But what is there to account for the prodigy of the tempest at Bertram Shipwreck? It is a mere supernatural effect, without even a hint of any supernatural agency, a prodigy, without any circumstance mentioned that is prodigious, and a miracle introduced without a ground, and ending without a result. Every event in every scene of the play might have taken place as well, if Bertram and his vessel had been driven in by a common hard gale, or from want of provisions. The first act would have indeed lost its greatest and most sonorous picture, a scene for the sake of a scene without a word spoken, as such, therefore, a rarity without a precedent, we must take it, and be thankful. In the opinion of not a few, it was, in every sense of the word, the best scene in the play. I am quite certain it was the most innocent, and the steady, quiet uprightness of the flame of the wax candles, which the monks held over the roaring billows amid the storm of wind and rain, was really miraculous. The Sicilian sea-coast, a convent of monks, night, a most portentous unearthly storm, a vessel is wrecked contrary to all human expectation, one man saves himself by his prodigious powers as a swimmer, aided by the peculiarity of his destination. Prior. All, all did perish. First monk. Change, change those drenched weeds. Prior. I was not of them. Every soul did perish. Enter third monk hastily. Third monk. No, there was one did battle with the storm with callous, desperate force. Full many times his life was won and lost, as though he wrecked not. No hand did aid him, and he aided none. Alone he breasted the broad wave. Alone that man was saved. Well, this man is led in by the monks, suppose dripping wet, and to very natural inquiries he either remains silent, or gives most brief and surly answers. And after three or four of these half-line courtesies, dashing off the monks who had saved him, he exclaims in the true sublimity of our modern misanthropic heroism, Off! Ye are men, there's poison in your touch, but I must yield for this. What? Hath left me strengthless. So end the three first scenes. In the next, the castle of St. Aldebrand, we find the servants there equally frightened with this unearthly storm, though wherein it differed from other violent storms we are not told, except that Hugo informs us, page 9. Pietro. Hugo well met. Does e'en thy age bear memory of so terrible a storm? Hugo. They have been frequent lately. Pietro. They are ever so in Sicily. Hugo. So it is said. But storms when I was young would still pass o'er like nature's fitful fevers, and rendered all more wholesome. Now their rage, sent thus unseasonable and profitless, speaks like the threats of heaven. A most perplexing theory of Sicilian storms is this of old Hugo, and what is very remarkable, not apparently founded on any great familiarity of his own with this troublesome article. For when Pietro asserts the ever more frequency of tempests in Sicily, the old man professes to know nothing more of the fact, but by hearsay. So it is said. But why he assumed this storm to be unseasonable, and on what he grounded his prophecy, for the storm is still in full fury, that it would be profitless, 
and without the physical powers common to all other violent sea-winds in purifying the atmosphere, we are left in the dark, as well concerning the particular points in which he knew it, during its continuance, to differ from those that he had been acquainted with in his youth. We are at length introduced to the Lady Imogen, who, we learn, had not rested through the night, not on account of the tempest, for, long ere the storm arose, her restless gestures forbade all hope to see her blessed with sleep. Sitting at a table and looking at a portrait, she informs us, first, that portrait-painters may make a portrait from memory, the limner's art may trace the absent feature, for surely these words could never mean, that a painter may have a person sit to him who afterwards may leave the room, or perhaps the country, secondly, that a portrait-painter can enable a mourning lady to possess a good likeness of her absent lover, but that the portrait-painter cannot, and who shall, restore the scenes in which they met and parted. The natural answer would have been, why, the scene-painter, to be sure. But this unreasonable lady requires, in addition, sundry things to be painted, that have neither lines nor colours. The thoughts, the recollections, sweet and bitter, or the Elysian dreams of lovers when they loved, which last sentence must be supposed to mean when they were present and making love to each other. Then, if this portrait could speak, it would acquit the faith of womankind. How? Has she remained constant? No. She has been married to another man, whose wife she now is. How, then? Why, that, in spite of her marriage vow, she had continued to yearn and crave for her former lover. This has her body, that her mind, which has the better bargain. The lover, however, was not contented with this precious arrangement, as we shall soon find. The lady proceeds to inform us that during the many years of their separation there have happened in the different parts of the world a number of such things, even such as in a course of years always have, and till the millennium doubtless always will happen, somewhere or other, Yet this passage, both in language and in metre, is perhaps amongst the best parts of the play. The lady's love companion and most esteemed attendant, Clotilda, now enters, and explains this love and esteem by proving herself a most passive and dispassionate listener, as well as a brief and lucky querist, who asks by chance questions that we should have thought made for the very sake of the answers. In short, she very much reminds us of those puppet heroines, for whom the showman contrives to dialogue without any skill in ventriloquism. This, notwithstanding, is the best scene in the play, and though crowded with solecisms, corrupt diction, and offences against metre, would possess merit sufficient to outweigh them, if we could suspend the moral sense during the perusal. It tells well, and passionately, the preliminary circumstances, and thus overcomes the main difficulty of most first acts, to wit, that of retrospective narration. It tells us of her having been honourably addressed by a noble youth, of rank and fortune, vastly superior to her own of their mutual love, heightened on her part by gratitude, of his loss of his sovereign's favour, his disgrace, attainder, and flight, that he, thus degraded, sank into a vile ruffian, the chieftain of a murderous banditti, and that from the habitual indulgence of the most reprobate habits and ferocious passions, he had become so changed even in appearance and features, that she who bore him had recoiled from him, nor known the alien visage of her child, yet still she, Imogen, loved him. She is compelled by the silent entreaties of her father, perishing with bitter shameful want on the cold earth, to give her hand, with a heart thus irrecoverably pre-engaged, to Lord Aldebrand, the enemy of her lover, even to the very man who had baffled his ambitious schemes, and was, at the present time, entrusted with the execution of the sentence of death which had been passed on Bertram. Now the proof of woman's love, so industriously held forth for the sympathy, if not for the esteem of the audience, consists in this that though bertram had become a robber and a murderer by trade a ruffian in manners yea with form and features at which his own mother could not but recoil yet she lady imogen the wife of a most noble honoured lord 
estimable as a man exemplary and affectionate as a husband and the fond father of her only child but she notwithstanding all this striking her heart dares to say to it but thou art bertram still and bertram's ever a monk now enters and entreats in his prior's name for the wonted hospitality and free noble usage of the castle of st aldobrand for some wretched shipwrecked souls and from this we learn for the first time to our infinite surprise that notwithstanding the supernaturalness of the storm aforesaid not only bertram but the whole of his gang had been saved by what means we are left to conjecture and can only conclude that they had all the same desperate swimming powers and the same saving destiny as the hero bertram himself so ends the first act and with it the tale of the events both those with which the tragedy begins and those which had occurred previous to the date of its commencement the second displays bertram in disturbed sleep which the prior who hangs over him prefers calling a starting trance and with a strained voice that would have awakened one of the seven sleepers observes to the audience how the lip works how the bare teeth do grind and beaded drops course down his writhen brow the dramatic effect of which passage we not only concede to the admirers of this tragedy but acknowledge the further advantages of preparing the audience for the most surprising series of wry faces proflated mouths and lunatic gestures that were ever launched on an audience to sear the sense prior i will awake him from this horrid trance this is no natural sleep ho wake thee stranger this is rather a whimsical application of the verb reflex we must confess though we remember a similar transfer of the agent to the patient in a manuscript tragedy in which the bertram of the piece prostrating a man with a single blow of his fist exclaims knock me thee down then ask thee if thou livest well the stranger obeys and whatever his sleep might have been his waking was perfectly natural for the lethargy itself could not withstand the scolding stentorship of mr holland the prior we next learn from the best authority his own confession that the misanthropic hero whose destiny was incompatible with drowning is count bertram who not only reveals his past fortunes but avows with open atrocity his satanic hatred of imogen's lord and his frantic thirst of revenge and so the raving character raves and the scolding character scolds and what else does not the prior act does he not send for a posse of constables or thief-takers to handcuff the villain or take him either to bedlam or newgate nothing of the kind the author preserves the unity of character and the scolding prior from first to last does nothing but scold with the exception indeed of the last scene of the last act in which with a most surprising revolution he whines weeps and kneels to the condemned blaspheming assassin out of pure affection to the high-hearted man the sublimity of whose angel sin rivals the star-bright apostate that is who was as proud as lucifer and as wicked as the devil and had thrilled him prior holland aforesaid with wild admiration accordingly in the very next scene we have this tragic macheath with his whole gang in the castle of st aldobrand without any attempt on the prior's part either to prevent him or to put the mistress and servants of the castle on their guard against their new inmates though he the prior knew and confesses that he knew that bertram's fearful mates were assassins so habituated and naturalized to guilt that when their drenched hold forsook both gold and gear they gripped their daggers with a murderous instinct and though he also knew that bertram was the leader of a band whose trade was blood to the castle however he goes thus with the holy prior's consent if not with his assistance and thither let us follow him no sooner is our hero safely housed in the castle of st aldobrand than he attracts the notice of the lady and her confidant by his wild and terrible dark eyes muffled form 
fearful form darkly wild proudly stern and the like commonplace indefinites seasoned by merely verbal antitheses and at best copied with very slight change from the conrad or southey's joan of arc the lady imogen who has been as is the case she tells us with all soft and solemn spirits worshipping the moon on a terrace or rampart within view of the castle insists on having an interview with our hero and this too tete-a-tete would the reader learn why and wherefore the confidant is excluded who very properly remonstrates against such conference alone at night with one who bears such fearful form the reason follows why therefore send him i say follows because the next line all things of fear have lost their power over me is separated from the former by a break or pause and besides that it is a very poor answer to the danger is no answer at all to the gross indelicacy of this wilful exposure we must therefore regard it as a mere afterthought that a little softens the rudeness but adds nothing to the weight of that exquisite woman's reason aforesaid and so exit clotilda and enter bertram who stands without looking at her that is with his lower limbs forked his arms akimbo his side to the lady's front the whole figure resembling an inverted y he is soon however roused from the state surly to the state frantic and then follow raving yelling cursing she fainting he relenting in runs imogen's child squeaks mother he snatches it up and with a god bless thee child bertram has kissed thy child the curtain drops the third act is short and short be our account of it it introduces lord st aldebrand on his road homeward and next imogen in the convent confessing the foulness of her heart to the prior who first indulges his old humour with a fit of senseless scolding then leaves her alone with a ruffian paramour with whom she makes at once an infamous appointment and the curtain drops that it may be carried into act and consummation i want words to describe the mingled horror and disgust with which i witnessed the opening of the fourth act considering it as a melancholy proof of the depravation of the public mind the shocking spirit of jacobinism seemed no longer confined to politics the familiarity with atrocious events and characters appeared to have poisoned the taste even where it had not directly disorganized the moral principles and left the feelings callous to all the mild appeals and craving alone for the grossest and most outrageous stimulants the very fact then present to our senses that a british audience could remain passive under such an insult to common decency nay receive with a thunder of applause a human being supposed to have come reeking from the consummation of this complex foulness and baseness these and the like reflections so pressed as with the weight of lead upon my heart that actor author and tragedy would have been forgotten had it not been for a plain elderly man sitting beside me who with a very serious face that at once expressed surprise and aversion touched my elbow and pointing to the actor said to me in a half whisper do you see that little fellow there he's just been committing adultery somewhat relieved by the laugh which this droll address occasioned i forced back my attention to the stage sufficiently to learn that bertram is recovered from a transient fit of remorse by the information that st aldebrand was commissioned to do what every honest man must have done without commission if he did his duty to seize him and deliver him to the just vengeance of the law an information which as he had long known himself to be an attainted traitor and proclaimed outlaw and not only a trader in blood himself but notoriously the captain of a gang of thieves pirates and assassins assuredly could not have been new to him it is this however which alone and instantly restores him to his accustomed state of raving blasphemy and nonsense next follows imogen's constrained interview with her injured husband and his sudden departure again all in love and kindness in order to attend the feast of st anselm at the convent this was it must be owned a very strange engagement for so tender a husband to make within a few minutes after so long an absence 
but first his lady has told him that she has a vow on her and wishes that black perdition may gulf her perjured soul no she is lying at the very time if she ascends his bed till her penance is accomplished how therefore is the poor husband to amuse himself in this interval of her penance but do not be distressed reader on account of the st aldebrand's absence as the author has contrived to send him out of the house when a husband would be in his and the lover's way so he will doubtless not be at a loss to bring him back again as soon as he is wanted well the husband gone in on the one side out pops the lover from the other and for the fiendish purpose of harrowing up the soul of his wretched accomplice in guilt by announcing to her with most brutal and blasphemous execrations his fixed and deliberate resolve to assassinate her husband all this too is for no discoverable purpose on the part of the author but that of introducing a series of super-tragic starts pauses screams struggling dagger-throwing falling on the ground starting up again wildly swearing outcries for help falling again on the ground rising again faintly tottering towards the door and to end the scene a most convenient fainting fit of our ladies just in time to give bertram an opportunity of seeking the object of his hatred before she alarms the house which indeed she has had full time to have done before but that the author rather chose she should amuse herself and the audience by the above described ravings and startings she recovers slowly and to her enter clotilda the confidante and mother confessor then commences what in theatrical language is called the madness but which the author more accurately entitles delirium it appearing indeed a sort of intermittent fever with fits of light-headedness off and on whenever occasion and stage effect happen to call for it a convenient return of the storm we told the reader beforehand how it would be had changed the rivulet that bathed the convent walls into a foaming flood upon its brink the lord and his small train do stand appalled with torch and bell from their high battlements the monks do summon to the pass in vain he must return to-night talk of the devil and his horns appear says the proverb and sure enough within ten lines of the exit of the messenger sent to stop him the arrival of lord st aldebrand is announced bertram's ruffian band now enter and range themselves across the stage giving fresh cause for imogen's screams and madness st aldebrand having received his mortal wound behind the scenes tosses in to welter in his blood and to die at the feet of this double-damned adulteress of her as far as she is concerned in this fourth act we have two additional points to notice first the low cunning and jesuitical trick with which she deludes her husband into words of forgiveness which she himself does not understand and secondly that everywhere she is made the object of interest and sympathy and it is not the author's fault if at any moment she excites feelings less gentle than those we are accustomed to associate with the self-accusations of a sincere religious penitent and did a british audience endure all this they received it with plaudits which but for the rivalry of the carts and hackney-coaches might have disturbed the evening prayers of the scanty week-day congregation at st paul's cathedral tempora mutanto nos et mutamo in illis of the fifth act the only thing noticeable for rant and nonsense though abundant as ever have long before the last act become things of course is the profane representation of the high altar in a chapel with all the vessels and other preparations for the holy sacrament a hymn is actually sung on the stage by the chorister boys for the rest imogen who now and then talks deliriously but who is always light-headed as far as her gown and hair can make her so wanders about in dark woods with cavern rocks and precipices in the back scene and a number of mute dramatis personae move in and out continually for whose presence there is always at least this reason that they afford something to be seen by that very large part of a dreary lane audience who have small chance of hearing a word she had it appears taken her child with her but what becomes of the child whether she murdered it or not nobody can tell nobody can learn it was a riddle at the representation 
and after a most attentive perusal of the play, a riddle it remains. No more I know, I wish I did, and I would tell it all to you, for what became of this poor child, there's none that ever knew. Our whole information is derived from the following words. Prior. Where is thy child? Clotilde. Pointing to the cavern into which she has looked. Oh, he lies cold within his cavern tomb. Why dost thou urge her with the horrid theme? Prior, who will not, the reader may observe, be disappointed of his doze of scolding. It was to make, query, wake, one living cord o' the heart, and I will try, though my own breaks at it. Where is thy child? Imogen, with a frantic laugh. The forest fiend hath snatched him. He, who, the fiend or the child, rides the nightmare through the wizard woods. Now these two lines consist in a senseless plagiarism from the counterfeited madness of Edgar in Lear, who, in imitation of the gypsy incantations, puns on the old word mare, a hag, and the no less senseless adoption of Dryden's forest fiend, and the wizard stream by which Milton in his Lycidas so finely characterises the spreading diva, Fabulosus Amnis. Observe, too, these images stand unique in the speeches of Imogen, without the slightest resemblance to anything she says before or after. But we are weary. The characters in this act frisk about, here, there, and everywhere, as teasingly as the jack-o'-lantern lights which mischievous boys, from across a narrow street, throw with a looking-glass on the faces of their opposite neighbours. Bertram, disarmed, out-heroding Charles de Moore and the robbers, befaces the collected knights of St. Anselm, all in complete armour, and so, by pure dint of black looks, he outdares them into passive poltroons. The sudden revolution in the prior's manners we have before noticed, and it is indeed so outre, that a number of the audience imagined a great secret was to come out, viz. that the prior was one of the many instances of a youthful sinner metamorphosed into an old scold, and that this Bertram would appear at last to be his son. Imogen reappears at the convent, and dies of her own accord. Bertram stabs himself, and dies by her side, and that the play may conclude as it began, to wit, in a superfetation of blasphemy upon nonsense, because he had snatched a sword from a despicable coward, who retreats in terror when it is pointed towards him in sport. This fellow, they say, and thief-captain, this loathsome and leprous confluence of robbery, adultery, murder, and cowardly assassination, this monster, whose best deed is the having saved his betters from the degradation of hanging him, by turning Jack Ketch to himself, first recommends the charitable monks and holy prior to pray for his soul, and then has the folly and impudence to exclaim, I die no felon's death, a warrior's weapon freed a warrior's soul. End of chapter 23